HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. So is there a flavor combination you like that other people can't understand? I grew up in Jamaica where we paired avocados with a cake, which is something sweet. We usually have it with bulla cake. So God has granted us with two beautiful flavors, rosemary and grapefruit. Apples and hummus is a great snack. Tartness of the grapefruit with just a tiny bit of sugar, offset with the earthiness of rosemary. Apples are crispy, but the flavor's not overpowering. And then they just go with the creamy hummus. Very yummy. You should try it. Uh, I would say in the Mount Rushmore of flavor combinations. Go slice yourself an apple, dip it in some hummus, and enjoy it. You just heard about some personal favorite food combinations that may be unfamiliar to some, but a match made in heaven for others. And in the spirit of Valentine's Day, odd couples are what today's episode is all about. We're taking a look beyond peanut butter and jelly and delving into some lesser-known pairings. From a book dedicated to flavor and matchmaking, to a pair of friends who found culinary bliss in the loneliest of places, Meat and 3 celebrates the fact that in the food world, you never know where you might find love. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Miso and gingerbread. Lavender and rabbit. Pears and bay leaf. According to some chefs, all of these pairings were made for each other. Isaac Furman tells us about a book that sets out to document every flavor pairing out there. Do you ever have the feeling that an ingredient in your pantry is taunting you? I'll give you an example. About six months ago, or maybe a year or five, 
I had an itch to make lamb kebabs for a barbecue. So I went down to this Turkish grocer in my old neighborhood and got some lamb, yogurt, lavash, and a critical ingredient in any half-decent kebab, sumac. And now, many barbecues later, I'm standing in my kitchen looking at a jar of sumac that is roughly 99.9% full. And I can feel the sumac looking back at me, laughing at me like it knew this would happen. You have no idea what to do with me, do you? So maybe your ingredient isn't sumac. Maybe it's bonito or hot sauce or kidney beans. But if you cook with any regularity, it's probably in there, wasting away or going stale behind its sad, faded, torn label. But I've come up with a retort to these smarmy ingredients, and it's called The Flavor Bible by Karen Page and Andrew Dorenberg. The Flavor Bible is my favorite cookbook, if you can call it a cookbook. Part theoretical text, part reference index, the book is like, well, a Bible to me. There aren't any recipes in the book. Instead, the bulk of the text is this index of ingredients, each with a list of complementary flavors. And given that it's Valentine's Day, I thought I'd ask my adoring partner and Flavor Bible superfan, Ariel Dreiser, to talk more about some unlikely couples. They put a little asterisk by bolded, a bolded capitalized word if it's like a super affinity or like a super pairing. So I spent like an hour going through this book and looking at all of the super pairings and like quizzing you on them, but I don't remember any of them. So yeah, dried plums and Armagnac. That's a super pairing, but it's just so fun. It's just like a world of, of knowledge that I'm... Spinach and butter? So you might have guessed by now that I'm the cook of the household and Ariel is the food appreciator. I guess in that sense, we go together like spinach and butter. But because of our dynamic, cookbooks are a deep reservoir of amusement. Okay, so we played this game with the Flavor Bible where I flipped through the pages to three random ingredients that at least I don't think go together. And then you try to make a dish that incorporates those three ingredients. And then I say whether or not I would eat that thing. So it's like chopped, but in our brains. So if sumac was on one of the pages, Ariel would look underneath the page heading and find avocado, beets, and sesame seeds in bold lettering. That means they like each other. And if it's bolded and capitalized, that means they like like each other. So maybe on Valentine's Day, I'll whip up a beaten avocado salad with a sesame sumac grapefruit vinaigrette. Who needs recipes? I do want to point out, though, that the authors did not spend years researching this book just to try and turn culinary creativity into a hard science. Thankfully, for the right-brained among us, cooking isn't algebra. You can't just solve for X. It's far too subjective. In the book, little ingredient-specific blurbs from famous chefs dot the pages. And when their wisdom is absorbed, you realize that there's a certain ephemeral quality to a lot of classic combinations. In the foreword, the authors call this an ingredient's X-factor. Ariel and I's little makeshift chopped game was fun, and definitely useful during the throes of lockdown. But maybe cooking at its highest form is understanding that the best meals aren't strictly limited to flavors. It's buttery corn on the cob, plus a late summer barbecue. It's bouffe bourguignon, plus snow-covered windows. Or a bold cob franc, plus someone you care about. 
I'll always love the Flavor Bible for helping me conquer the unknown depths of my spice cabinet. But I'll also try to remember that the best food pairings sometimes live outside the page. There's no denying it. Sometimes an ingredient's best pairing isn't found in the kitchen at all. Certain foods just seem to taste better when the weather outside is a little gloomy. Ellie Katz takes us to Spain to explore just that. When I moved here to teach English five months ago, there were obviously things that took some getting used to. The language, the rules about what to eat at certain times of the day. So I was happy to discover on one of the first rainy days that there is one dish that people here in Murcia eat only when it rains. Migas, or day-old breadcrumbs and heaps of meat all mixed up. That, I thought, I could figure out. Migas murcianas and rainy days just go together. And as it turns out, that's been the case for a long time. This is really very ancient food. This is almost from the beginning of the time. In Spain particularly, the shepherd has been a very important figure in history. Spain is a very mountainous country. And also, um, it's a country in which the sheep uh, lived uh, again from ancient times. And shepherds move the animals from north to south, from winter to summer, on an emigratory journey every year. And they had their own particular food. They made their own bread in a very simple way. And they had migas. This is Spanish food expert, cook, and author Maria Jose Sevilla. She's tasted migas made by shepherds in the Basque country, by vineyard owners in Navarra, and by her old school neighbor in the countryside of Andalusia. Murcian migas are especially rich, she told me, often made with lots of meat, sausage, chorizo, bacon. But there's one thing that unites migas across the peninsula. Their base of day-old chopped up bread. And in order to rehydrate the breadcrumbs to make migas, which, by the way, literally means crumbs, Spanish shepherds traditionally needed a solid rainy day. If it's raining, you can put the migas outside of the house, not to get watered, but there will be a lot of humidity, and they fluff up with the water, with the, with the humidity. It's like when you have your hair, and you are in the rain, and it goes, oh, it's very humid. Well, the migas go like that as well. So that's why it was traditionally cooked on the days that it was rainy. And it doesn't rain very often in Murcia. She's right. It doesn't rain very often in Murcia. So when it finally did, I set out to try this ancient pairing. Typically, bars around here will put out signs that say, Oye migas, or migas today. But after walking around to five different bars and restaurants, I came up short. And the waiter at my last attempt told me I'd missed the window for ordering migas for the day. Frustrated and also wet, I decided it was time to channel my inner shepherd and cook some migas of my own, chorizo, bacon, and all, with a few roasted peppers for good measure. My roommate and I steeled our vegetarianish selves for the onslaught. Mmm. Mmm. The roasted pep. Roasted pep good. I have no qualms with these breadcrumbs. I like the texture of them. Mm-hmm. You know what? The bacon is not bad. No, it's actually pretty good. That's a little bit succulent. <laughs> I'm not even kidding, like that's a juicy bite. <laughs> I do think when I saw it in the pan, mm -hmm. I was like, 
how could this ever be someone's comfort dish? Yeah. But this here before me, it is comforting. Mm. It's soft, but it's nourishing for sure. I don't know, like, if I'm necessarily going to feel like I'm ready to run or, like, <laughs> do some crazy physical activity after this. But for a rainy day, like, if I'm just trying to lie around and feel better, I could see it being comforting. But even if it rains this Valentine's Day, I'm not sure I'd add it to the menu. Would you eat this with a lover on Valentine's Day? Oh. I don't think so. <laughs> We might have to leave this one to the shepherds. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese. Makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere in the United States. But that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach cave-age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A dot com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. We've heard about how food pairs with rainy days, but what about food and holidays? Valentine's Day is closely linked to several foods, chocolate, oysters, champagne. But across the globe, there's more to it than that. Angie Fike explores plant pairings that best help us take care of our hearts this season of love. Herbal practitioners understand that plants can aid us in our physical health as well as emotional. In plant medicine, these two are connected. What's a better example of this integration of the emotional and physical than our hearts? To hear about this, let's meet Sarah Stroman, an herbal apprentice who's learning from practitioner Karen Rose at Sacred Vibes Apothecary in Brooklyn. Okay, so in the herbalism world, there's tons of plants, but Karen often tells us that the plants choose us. So wherever you are in the world, if you are open to seeing what's around you, you'll see the plants that show themselves. And those plants are usually the plants that that you need and the community needs. The plant that called out to Sarah was hawthorn. I was fighting. I was literally resisting hawthorn. And hawthorn was like, no, you don't get to resist me. I am your plant. And I started walking with hawthorn and hawthorn is a, is a heart plant and it is a love plant. It is a fertility plant. It is a very magical plant. The hawthorn tree's presence, particularly when accompanied by ash and oak trees, is said in Celtic folklore to be a portal to the fairy realm. 
if you were to tie like to tie a ribbon with your your like greatest desire to the to a tree branch to a a hawthorn tree branch then it allows for the fairies the magical beings to consider it as something that they would work on for you beyond the magical component hawthorn has centuries old uses in the medicinal realm in Chinese medicine, as well as other schools of medicine, this plant is used in herbal formulas as a tonic to address heart disease, improving circulation, and lowering the blood pressure. People use the berries, the leaves, the seeds, and the bark. There's the physical component of what the body needs, and there's also the spiritual component of what the body needs. And the longer we hold on to certain traumas or certain narratives or anything that could stop our heart from doing what it's supposed to do, which is flourish in this state of joy and with more openness and love, that also plays out through the way the circulatory system moves. One way Sarah tunes into the magic of Hawthorne and tends to her own heart is through hot water. Making hot water infusions, or tea, is a daily practice for Sarah, an opportunity to practice self-compassion and heart-tending. Yes, I have this knowledge and this training thanks to studying with Karen, but I also move with the plants intuitively. So when I'm making a tea, it becomes a process to me. And so it's like I slow myself down a little bit and it's like, okay, what is it that I need the most of right now? Maybe it's peppermint for clarity, motherwort and lemon balm for nerves, oat straw to nourish the belly. Or maybe it's hawthorn and rose petals mixed with some cayenne and honey to bring warmth into the heart space and to open up to compassion for ourselves and for those around us. However you choose to care for yourself this Valentine's Day, Take some guidance from Sacred Vibes Apothecary and be open to what the plants around us have to offer. We couldn't do a Valentine's Day episode without talking about love. And no two things love each other quite like viral food trends and TikTok. But if you've ever spent any time in the endless scroll, you'll know that social media and meaningful personal connections aren't always a seamless pair. That brings us to Uri and Sophia, two friends in Berlin who create recipes and cooking videos as Shemesh Kitchen. Andriana Chow chats with the duo on making food TikToks and how friendship plays a role in their work. I'm Uri. I was born in Israel, moved to Berlin 12 years ago. Um, used to make films, then used to have a, a band here with my sister. And then I realized I want to cook. And after spending some time farming in Italy, I started cooking in, in professional kitchens. So my name is Sophia. <laughs> and I'm from Berlin. I was born in Berlin. And yeah, I'm a creative and I always worked like in social media and with food, with food clients. And I was um, a journalist for food um, medias. The two friends met in 2015 when Sophia visited Uri's restaurant as a food blogger. She had um, 
a nice, very nice dinner at my place. <laughs> no, she always says uh, everything was too salty. I, I, I agree with some of it, but um, uh, yeah, but we really um, became like best friends uh, at first sight. With the onset of the pandemic in 2020, Uri found himself itching to cook, but many restaurants were shut down. Sophia herself had some extra time on her hands while on sick leave, and so Shemesh Kitchen was born in the playground of a park. They knew they were going to be making cooking videos, but what about the channel's name? To Berlin, Berlin is really dark. Everything is gray. It's like gray here, like for 10 months of the year, it's super gray. Then summer hits within like two hours, it's boom, it's summer. And then you have <laughs> for two months straight, it's unbearable hot. And then it's gray again. Shemesh is sun in Hebrew, and it was kind of um, addressing to the lack of sun in Berlin and how sun is such an important ingredient in good food and good produce. Shemesh Kitchen's recipes are vegetable-based, with Mediterranean and Middle Eastern influences. A Shemesh Kitchen video is a series of short clips, the addition of ingredients to a bowl, close-up shot of Uri's hands grating, chopping, or mixing, ASMR sounds, some funny moments when it gets messy, presenting the food, and finally, a clip of Uri and Sophia tasting their creation. But one hallmark of their content is that they rarely use dialogue. We knew from the beginning that we don't want to do voiceovers because we are both not um, native speakers. So we're not confident enough to do like voiceovers in English, but we wanted our content to be in English. Using social media may not be a match made in heaven for every creative person. So culinary creators looking to promote themselves can have a love-hate relationship with platforms like TikTok. What I loved about TikTok, like in the beginning, when every, like during first lockdown, I think when everybody um, was switching over to TikTok, um, was so that you learned something new like every day and you saw so, so many different creators on your For You page. It's an exciting way to expand outreach and engage with an audience but it can also come with unexpected downsides. People are getting stressed out about the algorithm. Um, it's difficult for us to reach people now. It's even more difficult for us to reach um, our followers now. Um, we experienced the whole shadow ban uh, thing where our videos wouldn't show up on people's For You pages. It feels kind of frustrating, especially for creators. It also comes with high expectations. When we started to get like more and more attention, it was I felt a lot of pressure and it was really challenging for me because everybody was like, yeah, what's next? What's next? We upload things when we're ready. And if that slowed things down, like inside of, inside of growth uh, a little bit, that's okay because it's okay to be a little bit, you know, slower with the whole growth thing than everybody else. Producing content can also be challenging when multiple voices are involved. Yes, sometimes it slows things down. If I see like individual creators and are able to, um, you know, publish content every day, I sometimes get a little bit jealous. I never really was able to create in a team per se, like as a chef, I lead my team, but co-creation is, is not really a thing. But Uri and Sophia stand by the importance of their teamwork in Shemesh Kitchen. Most recipes we develop together. 
Uri has a lot to say when it comes to, you know, filming and the post uh, stuff. I would never just like post something like a video or whatever without him, his approval. So we always give each other feedback and we decide everything together. Also, there's something very therapeutic about how we work together because we do have problems, but we really have learned how to fix them and, and kind of communicate them better to each other. We inspire each other and we learn from each other. And I could never do what we do alone. Shamish Kitchen has exciting plans moving forward. The cooking duo is planning to post longer videos to their YouTube channel, and their first cookbook is currently in the works. Uri and Sophia's friendship definitely shines through in Shamesh Kitchen, an example of how strong relationships in the food world can create amazing food and community. That's all for this week's episode of Meet and Three. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Isaac Furman, Ellie Katz, Angie Fike, and Andriana Chow. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Nat Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.